0: Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Coming up on this week's show, the best fan game of 2020 so far.
1: How hackers are making a better Game Boy. And the story of the imagination machine with Ed Smith. This week's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN
2: and Beer52, the world's most popular craft beer discovery club.
1: Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 229, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show. We're, of course, going to be looking back on everything that's been going on in the world of retro gaming and technology over the last seven days. We've got this amazing story that we need to talk about, about an Atari game that people still can't figure out exactly how it works 40 years later. More on that in just a minute. And of course, every week on the podcast, we bring you a very special guest as well. Now, if we talk about the earliest days of home video game consoles, a few names spring to mind, Atari, Intellivision, Coleco, obviously. But today, we're going to be talking about a lesser known system, the APF Imagination Machine. Yeah, so we're going to be talking with black video
3: game pioneer Ed Smith, and he's going to tell us about the APF electronics imagination machine this is a really interesting machine as it kind of came from three different machines copied so the Apple the TRS-80 and the Commodore PET it's a a real strange combination Uh, you've been watching some videos on it haven't you
1: Dan? Yeah, well, me mean, Joe were watching before we did the show this week. I mean, there's actually not that much on YouTube about it. But Gamester 81 actually did a video back in around 2013 showing this system. And it is, like you said, a really bizarre combination. I mean, essentially, it's a game system that looks a bit like a Pong machine. And then you've got a docking bay that transforms it into a full computer.
3: Yeah, so it's a weird hybrid between a console and a computer. And it was in those really early days where you could just design a computer from
2: scratch, really. What got me about it, what I thought was really interesting, which it looks really smart, and then you start kind of seeing the combination, like like other things, like you say, like they screw in a docking bay, so then you can then play the cartridges, which are tapes, which I thought was really interesting, and it's like really flimsy until you screw it down, which I just thought was hilarious that you had to do that. And you think in 1979 when this came out, that was really
1: revolutionary. I mean. You know, Ravi and I, were quite big fans of transforming consoles into full-on computers. Ravi's been, you know, upgrading his CD32 this week. Um, I've installed things like, you know, Linux on PlayStations and that in the past as well. So it's always kind of intrigued me turning a console into, kind of breaking it out of that little box and turning it into a full-on computer. But this machine, I mean, they had stuff like serial ports and modems you could add to it. It was a really rare, rare, like, disk drive edition as well. So you think for, like, you know, 1979, that was really cutting edge.
2: Yeah, really, really ahead of its time. I think the issue with it, though, from the videos was it was like $700 when it came out, which I can imagine with inflation in 1979 isn't very cheap. That's two and a half grand in Ooh. 2020 money. <laughs> <laughs> well, the
3: main thing we kind of worked out was because the the Apple rivals at the time and stuff were still around that price. The main thing we worked out was the difference between cassette tape and disc. Yeah. So in the interview, Ed talks about the change of when... You had machines like the Commodore PET that were disk based, but the Apple was separate, so you could basically add a floppy disk drive. This had the cassette built in, and that that was one of the problems. By the time it came out, people had moved on to floppy disks in America. So it's interesting to think actually that that whole kind of floppy disk CD-ROM has has happened before with cassette to floppy disk.
1: You know. Yeah, I mean the Commodore PET had a built-in tape drive as well didn't it so i mean it wasn't totally unusual for the time but i guess but you know if you're aiming at the console market which again it looks a bit like a product that you know was trying to overlap two different markets computers and consoles like a hybrid yes i mean it was a really interesting device so an apf not a name that you hear a lot about these days and actually ed's got a really interesting history because he also worked at apple didn't he
3: yeah so he also worked with apple later on and that was during the Lisa period and just coming from the apple II, and also he kind of He's a, he's a self-made guy. He, he managed to kind of work himself out of the ghetto to get into the tech industry. So it's a fascinating interview
1: this week. And he's got a new book out all about it at the moment as well. So we'll talk more about that and we'll chat with Ed Smith. He's our special guest on the show in around 15 minutes from now. Now, before we get into the stories this week, just time to say a big thank you to this week's very special supporter. We want to say a huge thanks to our good friends at ExpressVPN. Now, obviously, there are times when you want privacy when you're online, which, you know, in this day and age, it's getting harder and harder. But with services like ExpressVPN, you might be thinking, why don't we just use incognito mode? The thing about it is that doesn't hide your activity. You know, there are lots of times when your ISP can still see what you're doing. And I mean, I've been reading stories recently about, you know, internet providers like Verizon or Comcast. They can actually legally sell the information, the things you're looking for on the internet to ad companies as well. Whereas if you're using ExpressVPN, they reroute your internet connection through their ultra-secure servers so your ISP can't see any sites that you visit. Now, there are legitimate times when you want privacy online. Oh yeah, if you're working for a high-end company or you're,
3: you're, you're working for a, a kind of financial company as well, you really don't want people seeing what you're doing. So kind of
1: hiding your location and information is
3: uh, really important in a
1: situation like that. And also if you're using, like, shared computers, you know, if maybe you're at work and you're thinking, you know, you want to start your own business, you probably don't want all your employees logging on then seeing, like, you know, Ravi's ultra-secret business plan being searched for in Google. Yeah. So this keeps all your information secure and ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. I mean, Ravi, you've been using it for months now. I mean, you often don't even realize that it's turned on in the background because it's that seamless. Oh, yeah. This is, the, this is the
3: fastest one for sure. And then I'll post something and it'll be like, your location's in America. And I'm like, oh, God, I've got the <laughs> (laughs)
1: VPN. Streamer HD videos and everything. Keep secure. Keep safe. And also, it's available on all your devices as well. You can get ExpressVPN for your phone, your computer, even your smart TV. So really, there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Now, we want you to try out ExpressVPN. Get three months for free on us on a one-year package. And of course, you'll be helping out the podcast by doing this. So you can claim it right now by heading to this website, expressvpn.com slash retro. Get three months free on a one-year package and help out the show expressvpn.com forward slash retro to learn more now let's talk about this really bizarre atari 2600 game you think you know like 40 years on since the machine was in the mainstream surely those games are so simple that we know everything about how they run <laughs> but there was this game that came out back in 1982 that still got people scratching their heads on exactly how it worked today
2: I absolutely love this story. So this is about a game, is it called Entombed? Entombed, that's it. Entombed. And essentially, it's like a maze building game where the maze like generates as you go along um, and you have to avoid enemies as you run down. And essentially, as you run down the screen, it generates five panels of maze ahead of you at a time. But because the Atari obviously really limited memory back then, what it has is that the game has got an inbuilt algorithm where it builds the map, like randomly generates it as it goes ahead. Yeah. However, people, uh, are, you know, taking the game apart to kind of like, look at how they're doing it. Like look at how coders used to code it back in the day and stuff. And they've got absolutely no idea how they did it. <laughs> so they've reached out to the only person they could find who worked on the game, who was, um, a guy named Steve Sidley, And he actually revealed that the person who actually made the code left the company partway through building the game. And what I love is he was actually a stoner. And they reached out to him and he was just like, I've got no idea how I did it. Apparently, he was absolutely off his head when he made it. (laughs) (laughs) He said he was drunk and stoned at the same time. And he just came up with the idea and he just coded it. And apparently, he's got absolutely no idea how he made it. That is a he, he fell asleep,
3: didn't he? <laughs>
2: <laughs> he fell asleep overnight after he did it.
3: Woke up and then realized, "Oh, I've made an algorithm.
2: I've made an algorithm." And that's just amazing for a game from 1982 and I just think it's a it's hilarious that people are still baffled like to this day how they made that, including the guy that made it including the guy that made it like the two people that worked on it no idea how they did it
3: you've got to get him in that state again yeah who's the
2: plans <laughs> he's probably like dumb. 60 years old now or something
1: <laughs> I love I mean, the, we'll link to the article on TechSpot in our show notes. I love all the comments that are in there as well. People talking about maybe, maybe it was like, you know, he actually visited like another dimension and got like the code and then it was like, you know, in the game while he was passed out or something. So, yeah, I mean, that is an amazing story. So when I mean, you think those games have got to be so simple, and I imagine if they put the code out there online, I imagine, you know, the people of the Internet could probably figure out how it works in a few hours, I guess. But yeah. what a great story, though. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you do want to find out more about that, maybe track down the source code. Uh, it's really cool, though. I mean, for a game that's nearly 40 years old to still be baffling people in 2020, <laughs> I think it's awesome. Now, The Simpsons, I must admit, I've actually been watching quite a bit of The Simpsons during lockdown. I've kind of set my uh, my PVR at home just to kind of record them every single day. I've got like a series link on there. Jerry, I mean, I love the nineties episode. It always feels weird to me when you're watching The Simpsons and they've got like an iPhone in the hand or something. It just like yeah To me The Simpsons is like, you know, a nineties kind of time capsule. But there was a really good episode back in the mid-90s that um, if I remember rightly, didn't Bart get like a really boring video game for Christmas? The Lee Carvello's Putting Challenge.
2: Yeah. So in that episode, um it's 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 Christmas and the um he gets in trouble for shoplifting. He's trying to steal a game called Bone Storm, which is obviously, it's meant to be Mortal Kombat. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Bone all is... Forgi- Storm. Bone Storm, yeah, with Frill House <laughs> and all that. <laughs> and at the end of the episode, you know, all is forgiven by Marge. And she's like, I've got you the game that you really wanted. And it's Lee Carvello's pu- putting challenge.
0: <laughs> uh, and the scene itself is just hilarious. Should we have a I listen have to-, to a bit from it? Welcome to Lee Carvello's putting challenge. I am Carvello. Now choose a club. You have chosen a three-wood. May I suggest a putter? Three-wood. Now enter the force of your swing. I suggest feathered touch. You have entered power drive. Now, for seven, eight, seven. Then by the end. Ball is in. Parking lot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just love the fact that there's a power drive in a putting game. For
3: me, it summed up crap golf games at the time. And there were so many on so many systems of really bad, incredibly boring golf games. There were some good fun ones, but, you know, the market was flooded at that time, wasn't it?
1: I remember the one on the CDI as well. That was the one I also in shops, running. you know, it had like a photorealistic golfer on there. But I must admit, you've never been a big fan of golfing video games. And as a kid, if you got that for Christmas, you could share Bart's pain. However, if you were watching that and you thought, oh, that looks a load of fun, you can actually play it now for real. Yeah, so you can play it and it's it's kind of like a little
3: flash game and they've just taken samples you're not going to have like multiple levels or <laughs> multiple holes. But um yeah, it, it seems like a cool little concept and I'd love them to actually make more of these kind of games that were in the Simpsons because I remember there was a what was it Grand Theft Walrus? Yeah. Yeah, Grand Theft Walrus in the
2: fun. film, isn't
1: it? <laughs> I remember like the punch out clone they had as well that you know Homer gets really frustrated with. Oh yeah, and
2: hockey dad yeah (laughs) hockey dad oh
3: i'd love to play hockey dad
1: you know i'm thinking there's probably a market there for like a collection of uh mini simpsons games on like you know xbox live or something yeah on the switch or something like
3: that (laughs) they might be better than some of the classic simpsons games
1: actually (laughs) yeah
2: definitely. there were some
1: stinkers back in the day I must admit. now let's talk about the nintendo game boy obviously like the biggest handheld ever if you don't count the ds um but some people are not quite satisfied with the original Game Boys these days, and they've actually been taking to giving them more power. I know you've actually got a souped-up Game Boy, Ravi. Uh, yeah, I've got a Game Boy
3: Advance, and uh, it's it's backlit with a LCD. It's also kind of all the buttons have been replaced, and it's it's got one of these really nice new cases that they've started doing, and uh, it's themed like a SNES, so... It's all the kind of SNES colours and it just really makes the experience different. And, uh, you know, you can get some cheap flashcards for the uh, Game Boy Advance as well. So it's a good
1: little kind of system to take out and uh, play loads of games on. Well, the reason we're talking about this is Wired Magazine actually done like a really in-depth article uh, talking about the Nintendo Game Boy modding scene, essentially, haven't they, Joe?
2: Yeah. So essentially, I think a guy called Kyle Capel who is the CEO of an online store called Handheld Legends, Is pretty much been just kind of like stepping up the game with the LCD screens and stuff like that. So Ravi's is really nice. I've seen, I think it's like your second or third one as well, isn't it, Ravi? Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, and, you know, there's all these companies that are doing them as well. So you go to these video game events and there's guys just with beautiful modded Game Boys mm, of all different versions. They do Sega Nomads as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the kind of classic mod is people just kind of putting the lights in the side or just like, you know, the led lights just to kind of light it up. But people have like, I mean, I'm I'm not hundred percent sure how they do this. I'm not a modding guy at all, but they're taking the screens out and then like putting in this screen, this LCD screen, which was like invented in like 2001 or something for like smartphones. But apparently it fits like perfectly into the game boy and the game boy color. And it's just giving like the game boys, like these amazing crisp screens, um, and then it says something about how like they're, they're fed through a ribbon instead. And essentially, like it's just, I don't know, it's just making the screens just look absolutely wonderful uh, so you don't have to piss about with, like, you know, your light or anything like that. <laughs> um, That's like, the one thing, uh,
1: I think, you know, back in the day, we... We we looked at it like back then, and it looked impressive. But now, mate, I don't know if you're the same. I and mean, obviously, we get things like capacitors kind of failing over time and everything. But if I look at like my Game Gear original screen on my Torrey Link, I'm like, how how on earth did we ever look at these back in the day? I think it's a bit spoiled these days with modern LCDs.
2: Sometimes I well, just it's think it's
1: my the... eyes nice because I'm an old man now. <laughs> <laughs> it could be partially that as well. It could be that.
3: Well, it's the Muck Will uh, mods which yeah. are the LCD screens okay. and. Uh, They're basically out for a lot of systems as well. So you can get them for the links. You can pretty much do them on anything. And the main thing is with the ribbon cable is the way that it's kind of put in the machine. Because if you do the mod incorrectly, the ribbon cable can push on the back and you can get a little shadow. So when you're modding, there's all kinds of different ways that you do the cabling and all this management to get that really nice look.
2: Yeah, because I was reading on the article. Apparently, if you get it literally a millimeter out, then it won't be perfect. Like yeah. it's it's got to be that precise to make it look that amazing. <laughs> like so, if there's the if the ribbons to the side by a millimeter, or the original motherboard isn't quite right, you get that shadowing, like Ravi said. So you need like a bomb diffusion kit then to to fix it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much.
1: <laughs> You know, there is a really really good quote in here as well by um, a guy called Nick Rose when talking about it. I mean, he says, obviously, you can do all this stuff on your phone and everything today, but he said there's just something simple and satisfying about plugging in a game cartridge, turning it on, that D-pad, pressing the Game Boy buttons as well. I mean, it's it's something that, you know, obviously we can do software emulation, but emulating that experience is, it's not really something that you can just do with, like, phone emulators.
3: Yeah, emulators are good, but, man, those Game Boys were beautiful in... Uh the kind of dimensions that they had originally. So, you know, they all fit in your pocket and you can add all these extra functions. EverJives are cheap for them as well. It's great. And there's so many of them out there as well.
2: Just something about actually pressing buttons rather than a touch screen. I hate playing, like,
1: you know, platform games and stuff on the touchscreen. With, like, the mm. on-screen control, it's awful, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm well I'm well into this. So, uh, yeah, I'll play the yours, Ravi, as well. It's a really impressive bit of kit. So, I mean, I actually got a Game Boy Advance off oh, your Ravi. Uh, not a modded one, unfortunately, but I'm looking at this thing, and, yeah, I need to do a bit with that, I think. Now, maybe you're more into upgrading computers. There's this really cool little device that's come out for the Commodore 64. Now, this is called the Zeus LT Multifunction Interface Board. And this sells for $99. Now, obviously, the Commodore 64 has got a user expansion port on the back. A lot of people didn't really use that port if you let it off disk or cassette tape back then. But the thing about this is it actually lets you interface with home automation systems. So, I mean, I've got smart light bulbs in my house. I can walk in and go, you know, Alexa, turn on the living room light. However, I haven't got it hooked up to a Commodore 64. I'm looking at this and thinking... I really want to now. I did actually see a video on YouTube because there was a similar device that came out a few years ago called the Acacia Pay, I believe. And there's a video of a guy and he's lying in bed. And then it shows his Commodore 64 and it's on like a timer. And then <laughs> it starts at the kettle in his kitchen and then the toaster starts as well he left bread in from the night before it starts a little bedside radio you know turns on the power on that and then his lights come on and essentially he's up and ready for breakfast all thanks to his commodore 64 that he leaves running his home automation 24 hours a day <laughs> now, I, I imagine it's probably not you know as efficient as doing it on like an Alexa or something like that but come on how much more color is this it's well wallace and gromit <laughs> isn't it yeah. <laughs> yeah it is isn't it <laughs> See, like, I remember
3: back in the days, there was one for the Amiga, which was called Easy Link, or did that is that Easy...
1: X eleven or whatever it's called.
3: It, it, no, this was infrared, right? So this guy had like infrared receivers and senders all over his house, pointing at the curtains, at, like the the toaster, and everything, and it was all automated off his computer. But I can imagine if the cat ran in front of the infrared, it would have all messed up.
1: <laughs> See, I remember reading about home home automation, you know, as a kid in magazines and stuff, when all that kind of things were out, you know, the, the infrared devices and everything. And it always just seemed like so far out of reach back then, didn't it? And obviously now it's really simple to do. But I think there is something about kind of fulfilling that experience that you wish you did as a kid today with like these, you know, little add-on boards and stuff. There's just something really cool about it. And what a talking point. If your friends come round and you're like, you know, oh, it's a bit dark in here, I'm just going to my Commodore 64 <laughs> and your lights come on. That is like, cooler than me asking what? Alexa. <laughs> as
3: long as it doesn't take as long
1: as the tapes take. To like. <laughs> yeah, give me 20 minutes. I just got to load the software in first. Yeah, nobody nudged the tape drive even while I do this. <laughs> now, before we get into our chat with Ed Smith this week, um, I was really pleased to see this story. I mean, I'm a big fan of Rayman which I think is a game that you know, doesn't get enough love these days. And obviously being an Atari Jaguar fan, um, a lot of people think that was like an original PlayStation game. Rayman started on the Jag. That was a game that was developed for the Atari Jaguar. Obviously when sales didn't go all that well, they started releasing it on other platforms as well. But it's a game that, you know, I've always been a big fan of it. I love the look and feel of Rayman. And actually, there should be a new fan game that comes out today, meant to be released on Friday the 19th of June, called Rayman Redemption. Now... I've linked you guys up to this little trailer and I'll put the links. There's actually a demo that you can download now and hopefully the full game will be out by the time the show's released. I'll link it up in our show notes, but check out this trailer and how incredible this looks for a fan game. It looks really
3: clean. I remember playing a lot of Rayman on the Saturn Yeah, and uh, on the Saturn it would be one of the games where the RGB just looked absolutely amazing because it's always had that stunning look and I, I think they're still maintaining it with this, but... For me, it, it seems a little bit darker hmm. than, than the usual Rayman. You know, like just a colour set, it seems like it's set in a darker world. It's not It's not as uh, shiny, you know what I mean?
1: Well, they've upgraded it all to HD, obviously. I mean, essentially what this is, it's for the PC and it's a reimagination of the original Rayman game. Um, but they've got a lot of new content in there as well. A few new worlds in their new levels. We've got mini games, more stuff to collect and complete around it too. And this is actually—it's a fan-made game, so it's not officially sanctioned by Ubisoft, which has got a few people concerned. So I'd say—I mean, other people have made the point that you know, Ubisoft are not Nintendo. You know, they generally are all right with. You know, the demos have been up for a few months. They haven't taken that down. So I mean, there's a chance it will hang around, but. It, this looks like it could be an official game. That is how good fan games are getting in 2020.
2: I was going to say, looking at it when I watched it earlier on today, it it did look just like a new Rayman game. Yeah. But obviously, I was like, well, that can't be right because of they just everything's 3D for Rayman now. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, my, the, my first thought was before I even read the article, I was like, well, if this is fan made, is this actually going to get taken down? Mm. But like you say, Ubisoft, then they're, they're not Nintendo, they're not Metallica, so you know, you, so it might <laughs> stay up it's interesting
3: looking at the worlds as well because the worlds in it they're saying they're new worlds new levels and a lot of them seem to kind of be very old schooly themed like it reminds me of zoo like yeah, yeah. some of them being kind of uh and james pond there's a lego on that look, and he's driving in a car in it. it looks really like kind of james pondy so it's a bit more old schooly Rayman, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a remake of the first game, essentially, with a few new bits added in. But, I mean, the, the thing about it is, they've added these new things in there. They've upgraded it to full HD. And, I mean, it looks like, you know, it's buttery smooth, the animation and the frame rate and everything. It's uh, You
2: know, for a fan-made game, I think it's mind-blowing. I was going to say, that my main takeaway from it was the fact that it the way it ran, like, yeah. it just... I always... I love Rayman. And I've never really got past, like, the third or fourth level. And whenever I've gone back to play it, I just get frustrated with... How difficult and slow it is, whereas yep. this yeah. looks like, you know, it's probably going to be a bit of a, you know, bit daft me saying this, but it looks very playable. If that makes sense, like it was really a tough team. game, yeah, really tough game. Yeah, like whenever I come back, I'm like, right, this is it, I'm completely Rayman. And after two levels, I'm like, whoa, this isn't going well. <laughs> <But> <laughs>
3: those save points are really yeah. needed, aren't
2: they? <laughs> whereas this, I don't know, like you say, it's like buttery smooth kind of thing.
1: Yes, I mean, like we said, hopefully it'll stay up, but I get it while you can, so I'll put a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com if you want to grab it today. Uh, hopefully it'll stay up, though, because, I mean, obviously a lot of work's gone into this by the looks of it, you can tell. Mm. Now, before we get into our chat with Ed Smith, our special guest this week, we were lucky enough to have a nice bit of sunshine in the UK last weekend before we got... For about for about a couple <laughs> of days, and <laughs> then back oh, to rain. Right <laughs> but I did have a socially distanced barbecue with the in-laws in the, uh, in the back garden over the weekend. And uh, my father-in-law and I were enjoying some beer 52. And we've got to say a big thank you to our very good friends at Beer 52 for supporting this week's show. Now, if you're not familiar with Beer 52, they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. And it was so much fun, actually, right in the garden, at the barbecue one as well. Um, my father-in-law, he loves Beer 52 whenever I've got a case of that in. He actually had, it was a, a salted caramel stout. And he said oh. it was um it was like pudding in a can, he said. <laughs> Did you get it? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and, uh, there is something for everyone I'd like to say. Citrus pale ale look was really nice as well. What Beer 52 do is they source and curate from the world's best breweries on the planet and give you a case of eight craft beers. Now, we want to treat you to a free one. All you have to do is cover £5.95 for the postage. And of course, each case is delivered directly to your doorstep. No need to go out while the pubs are closed. You can get stocked up at home. Now's your chance. And Beer 52 have got over 150,000 members and they send you a brand new case every month. And each one's got a different theme as well. I mean, they've done, like, you know, beers from around the world, New Zealand. They did the South African case, um, America, Korea, all over Europe as well. And they're an independent British company passionate about UK craft beers, and they're supporting it during this difficult period. And obviously, you can pick the kind of beers you like in there. If you're not into, like, dark beers, pick the light pack, and you get Ferment Magazine and a tasty snack with it as well. And, of course, no obligation. You can change your mind. Pause or cancel at any time at all. But we want you to get your first case of eight craft beers for free on us all you got to do is cover the postage head to bf52.com forward slash retro that's bf52.com forward slash retro thanks for our very good friends at Beer 52 now of course we have got a patron running at the moment as well we had another patrons hangout on uh sunday evening that was a giggle ravi was showing off his gardening vinyl collection i <laughs> <laughs> was also
3: trapped in cd32 amiga code which was uh kind of interesting but um, it was a really nice chat good to see the guys again
1: and uh, yeah, just fantastic stuff. Now this is something we do every month, and um, it's nice to see new faces coming in all the time as well. I think we're at about 134 patrons now too, which your support is just absolutely mind blowing. And of course, the reason we're doing Patron is to uh, ensure that this show has got a future. We're trying our best to get a studio built, obviously, when everything gets back to normal, so we can do more content. Because I mean, the thing is, this studio that we I'm in now on my own, you guys are doing it remotely, um, but we don't own this studio, so really we're at the mercy of this place and the hours a day we can get in here and everything. So we really want to get our own Bill, and thanks to your help we are well on our way there and of course we've got lots of different tiers as well you can pick the one that works best for you but essentially you know, for the price of like a, a cup of coffee or a beer once a month you can make sure this podcast has a future and of course everyone that supports the show will get a mention in the retro hour hall of fame we try and get through as many names as we can each week like this week thank you to mark page damon crockett paul keward richard yates and Amika Passion, who all made donations into our Patreon. Thank you so much for your support, guys. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find all the links on our website at theretrohour.com. Right, we'll have more news for you in next week's show. And next, we're going to get the story of a classic system you've probably never heard of before. This is one for the real old school fans talking about APF Electronics, the imagination machine with
0: this week's special guest, Ed Smith. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up.
3: You're listening to the Retro Hour and I'm here with Ed Smith and we're going to talk about APF electronics and the imagination machine. How are you doing Ed?
4: I'm doing great Robbie, how are you
3: today? Oh great, great. Um, we always start our interviews with a question and that's like what was your first exposure to computers but seeing you're talking about designing a computer <laughs> I guess I, I need to say what was your first exposure to electronics?
4: Uh, yes, I um... My first exposure to electronics in general um, was probably at a very young age. In fact, I think it was around 10 or 11 years old. And I actually worked with a uh, an electrician who would um, repair lights, switches, et cetera, in the homes that we were renting uh, in Brooklyn. And I would be his helper. So I would hand him his pliers, his cutters, et cetera. Uh, so that was my first exposure and I saw him getting shocked and all of those types of things, but it was really interesting to see the work that he was doing. And I did take a liking to it. And I think that was the, the launch pad for me at that point.
3: So he kind of made the mistakes
4: and you <laughs> yeah. observed. And then, uh, yes. Yes. I it. saw him make the mistakes and I tried not to make the same mistakes, but of course I did anyway.
3: Well, you were raised in uh, very tough times as well in uh, Brownsville, New York. What, what was the situation like at the time?
4: So Brownsville in Brooklyn, just to give you some some background um as far as uh inner city neighborhoods were concerned, it was right up there with uh, the south side of chicago and and Oakland in California, long beach in california um It was a an environment that was um primarily set up to house multiple people stacked upon each other uh for no good reason with very little resources put into those neighborhoods to help the residents as much as they needed the help that they could get, but it just was not available. So growing up in Brownsville was growing up in a ghetto environment uh, where you had uh, a series of activities going on that were not very meaningful as a youth, like drugs, like crime, uh, like prostitution, all of that, activity as far as as well as muggings and murders were prevalent in a an environment uh like brownsville and that was the world that i had to grow up in
3: and i i guess there wasn't that much investment there either and kind of resources uh, to, to to keep the kids entertained so did you have
4: to kind of come up with your own entertainment yes as, as much as we could you know at, at at a young age as a child growing up in an environment like Brownsville, your entertainment is very limited. Um, we did try some things as kids. We put together our own bicycles because we couldn't f- afford to pay for them, so we would scrounge for parts to put together a bicycle and and try to ride a bike. Uh, we would um, make our own slingshots and break a few windows. We were, if we were lucky enough, we had a uh, a baseball so that we could play baseball in the park once we were able to get to the park but most times it was just a a rubber ball that we would use to play stickball with and were there
3: kind of many things that you were taking apart as a child was there like a, a local scene of kind of community electronics repair
4: um you know actually Ravi it was not I I just um and I, I apologize because I really don't know um how folks started asking me to repair things and I, I've got to believe it was because of something that I did at home, and I, w- I would fix a number of things uh, for my parents, mainly things like radios, uh, when the TV would blank out. I figured out early on it had to be a tube for the most part, so i pull the tube out and take it down to the drugstore where they had a tube tester and test the tube and check to see which one was the defective tube. Uh, so I did a lot of that at home. And I think um, it was probably someone who mentioned it or one of my friends saw me do it. Uh, and the next thing I know, I'm getting requests to fix other electronic items for other people, people in the community, like toasters, um, TVs, radios. You know, at that time, radios were big boxes. So you had to uh, go behind the box and figure out what the circuitry looked like to repair that and then get the right parts. So it was really a groundswell of people asking me to fix things, but there was no community involvement in that. It was just me. It's interesting because
3: even nowadays, like I go to certain poor communities uh, in my city and you'll find that there's these repair places and they're kind of repairing the old TVs and they've got a a lot of knowledge of the older systems as well, especially now we've moved from CRT TVs to kind of flat screens and stuff um it's amazing how these places kind of become essential uh when people can't really afford uh, the higher end equipment or just to replace it
4: yeah you know good point there because frankly i think one of the reasons why i was asked to try to fix things for people in the neighborhood was because those tv replay places that you talked about if there was one in the neighborhood uh the charges were just too much for those people to afford So they could not pay to have their TV or other appliances repaired by the shop in the neighborhood. And that's why they turned to me. And of course, my asking price was a fraction of what those shops were asking for.
3: And I I guess it was like, if it's not working anyway, we might as well get the kid down the road to have a look at it.
4: Right. What do they have to lose, right?
3: Yeah. Well, as you know, it's uh, quite dangerous playing around with monitors, CRTs (laughs) and... uh, high, high voltages, did you um, kind of know the risks or did you have any shocks or anything when you were a kid?
4: Oh, yes. Oh, yes, indeed. I I, um, I learned quickly um, and I had my share of shocks. I think the first shock I had was probably at around 12, 13 years old. And I've had a number of them since then. And I've learned um, in this business, uh, when you're dealing with high voltage, you have to be ginger when you handle wires um and i tell that to people or i told that to people when they were asking me how to get into this business an electrician's best asset is ginger fingers and i say that because if you hold on a wire too tightly and you do get that shock it's hard to let go mm, so i learned yeah. how to gingerly hold those wires and if a shock did come to me i was me imme- i was able to immediately just open my hands and drop the wire
3: yeah kind of chuck them out of the way <laughs> yep, exactly so this kind of repair business did it help you support your family and uh did you kind of decide electronics would be a, a path or a, a way to get you out of this ghetto environment
4: yeah yeah well yeah, i think i did you know once i started helping people to get their appliances repaired uh i realized that this was something that i could make money on especially when i saw that electrician that i helped you know he was making pretty good money at the time i'm sure and I thought that would be a good path for someone like me just to take what I know to the next level um, and um, make that a career path.
3: Do you have any kind of repairs that you really remember or, or you know, where the person was really satisfied with your
4: job? Uh, yes, I'll, I'll give you two. I'll give you one that was satisfactory and one that was not. The, the satisfactory job was uh, a person that did have a TV, one of those big boxes that had the television and the stereo system in the same box and the tv went out and as i mentioned i was able to pull out the vacuum tubes that were in the tv uh, jiggle them first to see if that would help and if it didn't i would take one tube out at a time take it down to the drugstore check the tube in the tube tester if it worked, I would try the next tube and then the next tube. And I didn't want to pull them all out at the same time because I probably couldn't remember where to put them all back in. So I did Uh them one at a time. And I finally, after about three or four trips to the drugstore, I found the defective tube. I got it in. It costed uh, my neighbor, I think it was like a buck and a half for the tube. And he had a working TV. He gave me five bucks and that TV worked I mean, for as long as I was living in the neighborhood, I know this guy had a working TV, so I'm sure he was happy. Uh, on the flip side, though, there was this vacuum cleaner that went out, and uh, it turned out to be the armature of the vacuum cleaner. So i pull apart the entire vacuum cleaner, take it completely apart, get the armature out, see that it's fried, and I said to this person, you need a new armature, it's going to cost about 20 bucks. And that person said, I'll have to wait on it. And that wait lasted 15 years. (laughs) And the person who I did that work for was my mother. (laughs) I never fixed the vacuum cleaner.
3: That's it. It's still sitting there. (laughs) It was
4: still sitting there. It was sitting for a long time. um, But after a while, um, I think it was like three years, two, three years after it was sitting there, I just spent $50 and got her a new vacuum cleaner. Well
3: nowadays it's probably easy for somebody doing this because they can get all of their documentation and breakdowns and stuff just offline yeah how did you go around collecting information and documentation
4: yeah what a wonderful world it is today to be able to pull up any schematic that you want that's publicly available um and that's that's a great thing and you're right back in the days that i was doing that work my education on all of this came from the libraries So I would go down to the public library and uh, pull up schematics on radios, on TVs, etc. That was my learning, just going to the library, opening up these books, these documents that showed me the circuitry, and I learned from that. What were the
3: attitudes of your friends at the time, kind of wondering what you're doing working with these electronics? Did they get it? Did they understand?
4: They did not, and, you know, growing up in, in the environment that that I did really had a, a profound effect on, on the kids, not just myself, but the kids that grew up uh, in that environment. And then that effect was one of, in my estimation, degradation, one of saying, there's no way we can learn that. We don't have the ability to take on that type of knowledge. And that was a lot of the kids in my neighborhood. So when they saw me doing this work, they were all very skeptical. Even once I was able to fix something, they were like in shock. You know, it's like how, how how do you do this? But they have never really wanted to do it themselves. Their path was totally different. Mainly, as I mentioned, some plot, some area of illegality was a better bet for them than to take the time to learn.
3: Well, in 1972, you managed to get a position at Marbleite, and that was working with uh, traffic controllers and traffic systems. How did you? How did this change your life and how did it kind of help you understand systems more and the kind of wider idea of computing?
4: Yeah, so Marbleite was really a great company to uh, get my feet wet at. And prior to Light, um I went to uh, Magnet High School, George Westinghouse in Brooklyn. Had to take two buses and a train to get there. Um, and that taught me a lot on the... Uh, technical side of electronics, so that was really the uh, the launching pad for me as far as education is concerned, is knowing that I needed to have that level of training if I wanted to take this career path, and I had to make sure that I was able to get that education uh, at a high school level. And so I took, after Westinghouse, yes, then I went to Marbleite, and that company was in the business of manufacturing traffic signals for years. Um, They were selling their systems to all of the, not all, I'm I'm sorry, many of the state municipalities uh, in the country, mainly in New York state, in Florida, in Chicago, Illinois. So we had state contracts um, that we would fulfill and we would build the units, including all of the sheet metal work that had to go on and then we would build the boards for those units and those boards had the electronics to control the traffic signals and those electronics started out as being mechanical uh, electronics camshafts if you know that yep. and then we went to solid state switches and then we got introduced to the microprocessor world as the company felt that that was the next Evolution for traffic signals.
3: That's really interesting because it's kind of this weird bridge between uh, the the microprocessor and uh, the kind of traffic world. Yeah. Uh, when you first heard about these kind of single chip microprocessors, you must have got excited.
4: Uh, I, I actually did. um You know, so even while I was um, early on at Marbleite, and it probably was the same as as when I was in Westinghouse, I was a uh, voracious tech publication reader. So I read Omni Magazine, I read Popular Mechanics, Popular Electronics, I'm, I read all of those tech publications um, early on. So I saw when the calculator business started to become popular, I had a Bomar Brain when that came out, so I knew about the 4040 chip when that was introduced just by reading these technical publications. So I always had that background of what was going on in the field of technical electronics that I was able to keep with me throughout my career. And did
3: Marbleite send you on some kind of night course or or some kind of evening course where you would learn about this uh, new single-chip Intel processor?
4: Yeah, um, so it was really a... um, an introduction. First of all, it was Fairchild who came to Marbleite, And Fairchild at the time, they had a mandate to go to as many equipment manufacturers out there and introduce this new microprocessor technology. And that's what really got the folks at APF excited because Fairchild gave them the pitch and they saw that this was something that was possible. And they decided to take myself and another colleague in the business and get us trained up so that we could be the ones that would do the um, troubleshooting of those units. So we did not just night courses, although that was a part of it, but we spent a good month of our time at Fairchild's headquarters learning microprocessor technology.
3: Wow. What was it What was it like at the headquarters then? What was the kind of atmosphere? Uh, and were, were they producing the um, Channel
4: F around that time? The Channel F was just coming out at that time, and I think that was in 73, maybe 74. But yes, the Channel F had just come out. It was, it was all brand new technology, and they had a number of people in their facilities uh, that they were showing this new technology, these new chipsets to. Um, and the environment was really interesting. It was, it was really a, a, um, a shop-like environment um, where you had a lot of workbenches in front of you, Uh, You were able to um, put together a mock chip environment and learn the intricacies of all of the different components of that chipset. So, again, reading those technical publications gives you, you know, your mind just really goes out there and you start to dream about a lot of things that you could do with this type of technology. And one of the first things I actually thought about when I learned about the. the fail child processor was this ability to do mathematics, all about calculating numbers at very high levels. And to me, that was the power of the processor. It was all about putting together an environment by which the processor could crunch numbers. And what kind of languages
3: were you using? And uh, you learned to program on there. I assume it was kind of
4: assembly or binary. It was all binary, yeah, um, and assembly. Actually, it was both, but mainly binary. We would actually talk to the talk directly to the processor chip. Wow, so you're really kind of hitting the metal there. Yeah, it took a lot. It's uh, you know, uh, you're doing a, a a lot of instruction sets directly to the processor. You're 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 putting in instructions and you're expecting certain outputs from those instructions. So you're you're doing a lot of uh, peeking and poking. Well, when kind of Pong came around
3: and uh, Atari suddenly got really big, um, how did that change society's kind of focus and uh, public's attention on video
4: games? Ah, so Pong. Yeah, this is, uh, this is an interesting piece because Pong, as you probably know, Robbie, um, started out in the arcades and uh, yeah. became very popular in the arcades. And uh, it was a, I cannot recall the name of the company who made it into a chip, but when it did become a chip, that's when Atari took that chip and made one of the first Pong games. But it wasn't very long after that, that you had probably another dozen companies who did exactly the same thing. They just go ahead, went ahead and bought the chip uh, and made their own Pong games, including the company I ended up working for, which was APF. But but Atari was one of the first, and since they were the first, they had the edge on the market for the game Pong. And you know, it didn't take long for people to uh, uh, identify Pong with
3: Atari. Yeah, it became legendary stuff. Um, so you mentioned that you joined APF, and they, like many manufacturers at the time, were developing calculators because uh, I know that a uh, Commodore were creating calculators and that there's a kind of theme with calculators going on to video game companies hmm. uh, and they created their first um, pong clone tv fun how much did you know about this company before
4: i knew nothing about apf until i joined the company uh, however once i had been offered the interview uh, i i studied a little bit more about apf which wasn't easy to do at that time. You know, you just couldn't Google APF, right? You had to um, you had to go into some documents that were publicly available, or talk to someone at the company, hopefully that you could get your hands on, to tell you a little bit about APF. Luckily, they were in some of the uh, magazines that I read, mainly because of their calculator business, uh, and they actually did come out with a PC-based machine called the Picos One that was in some of those publications. So I started to know a little bit about APF, and then one day I was at a Sears store and I saw the TV1 game there. So that was my introduction to APF before even started to being an employee of the company. What were you hired to do there? So APF, based on the resume that was put together for me by an employment agency, saw that I had this training on microprocessor technology. Now you have to remember that at, at that time, you know, this is 74, 75, I guess at the time maybe, there were very few people who knew anything about microprocessor technology. In fact, I was in college at Pace University studying computer science and they were still teaching me how to program with punch cards. So there was very little education on microprocessor technology. And when APF saw my resume, I'm sure they said, we're gonna take the warm body who knows this? And you know, if he knows enough, he can learn the rest. And I think that's exactly what their attitude was.
3: So, so they had an idea to kind of come up with their own machine. And I was wondering how easy was it to kind of get computer plans back then? Uh, how available were they yeah. designs for computer systems?
4: Yeah. So um, it was uh, not as hard as you would think. APF actually hired me to be a part of the design team. You know, keep in mind at this time, who knew what a design team was, right? We were all kind of new at this thing. So we were just picking our pieces as we went along as to what we thought we could do based on the knowledge that we had. So when we had to go and pull up information on these different computer systems or even the video game systems prior to that, you didn't have a lot of schematics available to you. So you did have to do some reverse engineering. And by the way, if you look at any video game today, and for that matter, any PC today, well, maybe not today because they've got so many things packed in, but in the earlier days, the design concept was pretty much the same, right? You had a processor, you had a peripheral output device, uh, you had a a video output device that you would just put together based on the uh, connections to the processor, and that produced something on your screen question is then, what is the actual software that you're going to run on this device that makes it unique? And that's the thing we learned at APF. We learned that anybody could build a video game because the technology was readily available and anybody can build a personal computer for the same reason. But the games or the applications that were on those systems is what made them unique, as well as the versatility of those systems.
3: And you guys wanted to go ahead and develop your own system, right? We
4: did develop well, it was our own personal computer. We started with the video game. The MP one thousand was called was the name of the video game. And we were in this crazy technical environment that was so new. Ravi, this was this was worse than bleeding edge. I don't know what's after that, but it was really, really at the edge of everything that anybody would conceive at that time. So we were just really shooting at the hip with some of the things we were coming up with. So we had this great video game. It wasn't a hot seller, but it sold well enough where we sold thousands of units of it. And we had a market and that market was in the home. So the executives at APF, once the computer business became popular, thanks to Apple and Radio Shack and Commodore and others, We realize, or they realized, the executives at the time, that there is an opportunity for APF to get firmly entrenched into the home market. Keep in mind at this time, in those days, many of the folks who bought personal computers were either hobbyists or they were accountants for spreadsheets or writers for word processing, um, but they were not for home users specifically. And that's the market that APF wanted to go after. So we already had the video game and we thought it would be a good idea to take that technology, which is already a a personal computer in itself and expand it so that you had the keyboard uh, capability so that you can do word processing. And you had a footprint that was more of a PC-like footprint. And, but by the way, you could still play games. So that was the concept. So it was a hybrid that we built there was a connector between the video game and the computer console that I designed. It was called the J-Connector, and it housed, it brought those two environments together, and that was, that is what became the Imagination Machine. And it was a really good design. I mean, it worked extremely well. We had a number of applications that ran on it. Uh, we tried a number of home applications specifically because that's what we were going after at that time.
3: And you guys, as you mentioned, reverse engineering, you took a lot of influence from TRS uh mm. the Apple and uh, Commodore PET as well.
4: Yes, yes. We We reverse engineered all of those. In fact, we didn't even have to reverse engineer the Apple because at that time, the Apple computer came in its manual. The schematic was in the manual. How's that, right? So during <laughs> yeah. those days, there was no thought about you know, protecting your intellectual property. They freely showed you their schematic. In fact, I had the schematic at one time and I, unfortunately, I can no longer find it, but I had an Apple schematic from one of the first computers they designed. So it wasn't that hard to figure out how these PCs were made. And once you have a schematic for one computer, you can go and poke and peek at another computer and figure out how that's designed. What you can't really pull out is how they program the ROM. Right. That's something that you have to do individually.
3: And I I guess being a a hybrid between a a console and a computer kind of um, people must have assumed that it was a computer game first and then had these extra bonus things on. And uh, maybe you must have tried to target it more of the gamers than computer people.
4: Yeah, yeah, it was it was the gamers, it was the folks. In fact, it, a lot of it had to do with the fact that we had so many uh, MP1000s in the market, we felt that the people who already owned the video game would quickly get the console to make it into that full-fledged computer. Uh, so that was the one opportunity we saw. But yes, the gamers themselves at that time, um, if they already had a video game or if they were playing video games in the arcades, and they saw this advertisement for the imagination machine, clearly they would think, wow, I can have both the video game and I can learn about computers at the same time as long as my parents can afford $599.
3: And uh, it came with a cassette deck as well. I guess that format would have been really popular in Europe, but uh, the Americans seem to love discs from what I remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, did this affect the machine sales?
4: Yeah, the... um. The cassette tape technology was around for quite some time. That Picos One computer that I talked about, they had a dual cassette, I believe, on that system. And that's why we went to cassette, because we knew the technology, and we knew it pretty well. Uh, But other firms were also using cassette tapes at the time, but they were standalone options. They were not built into the consoles for the most part. And That's one of the beauties about the Apple computer. Everything was an option, right? you You could plug in a board uh, or you can add a component uh, as you needed to. However, at APF, we chose to build the tape deck into the console. and um, for the for the home market, we felt that was suitable. Yet, even at the home market level, we realized that they were pretty smart as to what they wanted with a personal computer. And they knew that hard disk technology, I'm sorry, floppy disk technology, I'm getting ahead of myself, was becoming available. And they wanted the latest and the greatest. And they didn't see purchasing a personal computer with a tape drive in it when they can purchase one with an optional floppy drive or go back to a tape drive if they chose to. Um, So yes, we built it in. The engineering team did not want a tape drive built in. Again, we were looking at the systems that were on the market, especially the Apple that was taking off. And we knew that having these things as options was the best opportunity for us. But you're talking about a consumer products company, which was what APF was. They were not a technical company. They were a consumer products company, right? And they felt that if you're going to offer a consumer a product, it should have certain things built into it. So how much
3: were you involved with the design process of the whole thing the the, the kind of joysticks uh, of the MP1000 but also the imagination machine as well
4: Yeah so I was again uh, from day 1 when I joined APF in fact it may have even been day 1 I'm not sure but we went right into the conference room and started to chalkboard I didn't say whiteboard at the time it was chalkboard our designs and as I mentioned earlier on each of us came to the table with certain levels of knowledge on microprocessor technology. Keep in mind that my knowledge was was primarily based on what I did at Light, um, which was a lot of output stuff, right? Turn the signal on kind of thing. So you're always sending outputs from the processor to these uh, traffic signals. So I understood a lot about bus technology. So that's where they brought me in to do a lot of the help in developing things around the bus. So the bus for the cartridge slot was one. That J connector that I talked about was another. Um, They actually gave me the project of uh, helping to design the joystick, even though I didn't know anything about joysticks at the time, but no one else did either. But I reverse engineered the Atari joystick and uh, saw how that worked. And we sat down and went through a series of iterations of that joystick. And some of the things that I pointed out when I looked at the Atari joystick was the fact that it only had the one button. And I thought, boy, you know, it would be nice to have something else on the joystick just in case we come up with the uh, program that would take advantage of it. And that's why we added the, the numeric keypad to it. And then we also made sure that our joystick was easier to use in one hand than two. So if you ever hold an MP1000 joystick, you can literally hold it with your single hand. You can move the top of the joystick with your thumb, and your pointer finger would be on the back of the unit where you can hit the fire button. Nice. Right? So, from a user standpoint, we were looking at all of those types of things. When you had an an Atari joystick, you had to have two hands. And, and uh, I,
3: I, you saw them in the adverts, all using two hands. Yeah, so. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah. So, so some of those things, you know, it took us a long time to just go through those iterations, and we went through a lot of different configurations to be able to say, you know what? This is what we think will work the best. Unfortunately, we never did much with the numeric keypad, but we had some plans on the table to take advantage of that down the road. Well, this must have helped because you ended up
3: going out and kind of promoting the machine and uh, uh, being the kind of a uh, main public speaker and uh promo guy for the imagination machine.
4: How how did you yeah, get into
3: that role? how about that?
4: That, that was an amazing uh, uh, set of circumstances that happened at the time. And you know, it just goes back to the um, the virginity of the PC world at that time, so new, uh, so unknown to a number of people, that the salespeople who worked at APF did not have the knowledge to be able to articulate the features and functionalities of that system to key buying people. And you know, the engineers, the senior engineers at that time. They wanted to stay focused on what they were doing, which was designing products. Um, So I was kind of like the oddball guy. I was already doing educational chats to um, some of the computer companies that were in New York City at that time. So I was already pitching that system for them. And as the opportunity came up for me to pitch that system to a larger stage, I was brought in to do that by the... uh, Vice President of Sales at the time. Now, again, you're talking about a guy who is, uh, you know, again, from Brownsville, Brooklyn, who never learned how to speak publicly. Um, And it took me probably two or three times speaking in public before I became comfortable. But once I did have that comfort level, I had already reached the biggest platform in my career at that time, which was the Consumer Electronics Show.
3: Yeah, I was gonna say because you 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 were at the first CES and uh, that must have been absolutely amazing. Uh, did you bump into many famous people like uh, Jobs and Wozniak or any any of the other computer pioneers? And what what was the atmosphere like at that CES?
4: Oh, uh Ravi. The first of all, the atmosphere was incredible. It was it was tech everywhere. I was I was in tech heaven. I loved it. It was. You know, at that time at CES, most of the technologies were around the audio business. You know, you had uh, Marantz, Sony, TAC, all of these different stereo companies with their big boom boxes and huge speakers. And then you had this other side where the, uh, the new guys were, which, is, was, which was us, the, the PC guys and the video game guys. Those were all separate areas of technologies that people could migrate to. But the environment itself was just totally amazing. You could just walk the floor and pick up so much knowledge. I gotta tell you, I I did not meet, at least as far as I can recall, any Illuminaries there when I was at CES. If I did, I didn't get a business card, Uh, I didn't get the name, I didn't care, I was having so much fun. Um,
3: <laughs> <Geeking out. laughs>
4: yeah, I was, I really was. And, um, but I did have a chance to meet both Steve jobs and Steve Wozniak at a Boston computer society conference that I went to, uh, prior to CES. Um, and when I met jobs first, before I met Wozniak, I, I met jobs and someone said, Ed, this is Steve jobs. And I reached out to shake his hand and he gave me one Tote on the hand and just turned and walked away from me. Never said Ooh. a word. That was junk, yeah. I, right? I
3: I've heard lots of <laughs> lots of tales like that from Steve. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
4: However, when I got introduced to Steve Wozniak, I said hello and he said hi. What brings you here? And I told him about APF and he started telling me about the Apple and I was more interested in the Apple than APF. And I started asking him, I asked him one question about Apple, and I think it had something to do with the bus, of course, which is my world. And I said, I love what you did with the expansion bus, et cetera. And, and he just went on for about four or five minutes talking about how he made sure that the system was completely open, how people could just build their own boards and plug them in, and it would just boost the sales of the Apple. And I'm thinking, my God, that's perfect, right? Yeah. So a five-minute conversation with, with Wozniak was worth every, every, every minute.
3: Oh, that, that's awesome to hear. And
4: yeah.
3: how, how long did you go around kind of toting the um, uh, imagination machine to everybody?
4: Uh, until I left APF, I was actually, I, I had my title when I left, when I came back from CES. No, I'm sorry. Let me re- rephrase that. Before I left for CES, we actually had a another sales call with Sears, who was our biggest distributor at the time. I had to pitch the Imagination Machine to Sears prior to going to CES. So my title was changed from Design Engineer to Technical Specialist. So when I arrived at Sears, that was my role. And I pitched the Sears executives the Imagination Machine and then went to CES directly after that as a Technical Specialist.
3: So you had a bit of a, a dry run with the big retailers and then uh, oh, yes. yeah, went out. <laughs> yeah, Because yep. it was mainly North American, wasn't it, the imagination machine?
4: It was mainly North America, yes. Although we did have our manufacturing offshore and some of those machines ended up as third-party names offshore, but not a lot. Well, what happened to APF and
3: was there an imagination machine too?
4: There was an imagination machine too. Um, and the the quick background is, again, when we were looking at our competitors at the time uh, as to what they were doing in the marketplace. And I'll preface this by saying that at APF, as a consumer electronics company, APF's charter was to wait until someone builds something and sells it, and then we clone it. You heard of the clone manufacturers. That's what we were. And we would clone something and just sell it at a lower cost and in a different distribution channel. That was the strategy at APF. So when we did the Imagination Machine, we saw that there was that market for the video game personal computer hybrid, and we went after that market. But then we also saw that our competitors were starting to design or had already designed full-fledged personal computers without a video game, even though companies like Atari, And I think it was Coleco with ColecoVision had announced that they would adapt their video games to a computer console. Atari never did. Uh, So we saw that we had a hole in the marketplace where that hybrid wasn't selling as well as it should. And we thought we needed to take the video game and build it into a complete console without the video game being shown. That was what we did with the design of the Imagination Machine 2. The unfortunate thing is once we were able to complete that design, I think we got about two or three prototypes out, the company's bank started stopped funding them money, and that was the demise of APF. We were not selling the Imagination Machine 1 as much as we could. We thought we had a good opportunity to change the trajectory with the Imagination Machine 2, but we just could not get it funded.
3: You ended up managing an Apple dealership in upstate New York. That must have been quite early on in kind of computer retail. <laughs> yeah. Did it seem a bit like an alien concept to the public? where you trying to convince people to come in?
4: You know, again, it was fun. It was Geek City. I mean, it was it. You know, I, I Robbie at the time, and maybe even today in some areas. It's, you don't really care about who's buying anything. You're just there enjoying all of this stuff that's in front of you. you know? You're know, you having such a great time learning all of these nuances of all of these different systems. Um, and then when people did come in and you started to share with them what they could do with these things based on the knowledge that you were able to, to acquire, um, yeah, you're going to sell things, right? Because it's just it's, it's so much that they uh, can do. Uh, with a PC at that time that, you know, they're not going to do it all at once. But when you start to paint the picture, and by the way, I was not a trained salesperson, but I was able to paint the picture. And when they saw the uh, opportunities that were in front of them with a personal computer, it was astounding. And as I mentioned, you know, some of the early buyers were either the people who read those technical publications that I talked about. They knew everything. Or it was somebody who said, well, you know, I'm a CPA and I just need a spreadsheet or I'm a writer and I just need a word processor. And that's why they came in to buy these personal computers for specific tasks.
3: And and it's really interesting, actually, because I, I went to America recently and I went to the Apple and I went to the Windows store as well. And I noticed that they had this kind of vibe where they were trying to get that community feel back. They were trying to get people to talk about what projects they were involved with and get them to just hang mm. around in that geeky space because uh, I feel it went a bit
4: too retail at one point. You know? they, they, they did. In fact, um, I would, I'm going to call Apple Computer, in my estimation, they were a geek killer. And I say that because they had the perfect machine with the Apple II or the Apple IIe. And that was the machine that had the architecture for the bus architectures where you can slide in any uh, additional component card that you wanted to, be it a serial bus card or, or a parallel card or another memory card. Anything you wanted to add to that Apple, you could do it openly and freely. And then Apple decided to close their architecture. And they just took every who every company who was a geek company that built cards out of the marketplace. They just killed that entire business, right? So they came out with the, after the Apple II, it was the Apple III. Closed architecture, never sold much of anything. It was kind of like the imagination machine, now that I think about it. But yes, so the Apple III, and then they followed that up with another failure, which was the Lisa. So they had two failures in a row, both closed architectures that completely took away that entire geek market that was developing cards and add-on products for the Apple II. And here's the other piece to that story that's really interesting. Again, after the leases, of course, they came out with the Macintosh. That became a successful system in its own right over time. However, they never was able to capture the marketplace for the personal computer market as did IBM. And why did IBM win the market? Because their architecture was open. People could build cards, you can buy additional capabilities for the IBM PC that you could plug in, and that's what made that machine popular. Apple had that business and they lost it because they closed their architecture. It it must have been really
3: tough if if you know, you'd been selling the Apple II and then someone's coming in and you've got this closed up LISA and you've kind of gotta explain that, you know, oh no, we can't yeah. do these expansion cards or Right.
4: I mean, you know right.
3: they might get a bit
4: frustrated, you know. They were frustrated and you know, the answers that we had we had at the time was well, you can you know, you have these universal bus architectures that you can plug one thing into and daisy chain to another, but it was all external right so yeah you could do it but it was kind of kludgy the way you had to do it and no one liked that and by the way the lisa as well as the apple 3 the processors i believe at that time were still 8-bit The lisa was 16 but i think the apple 3 was still an 8-bit processor very slow machines you could hardly get anything into memory and do something with it because of the overhead that was on those on those machines
3: kind of looking back you 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 must have Maybe left Apple at the point where they were kind of going really low down at the time um, if If you look up to them now, uh, are you amazed with the kind of progress that they 've made and how long that transition to the closed architecture took because it was a good like five ten years wasn 't it
4: it was it was, and you know i i I was not very pleased with what Apple did at the time as far as closing their architecture and i think it took apple themselves a number of years to recover from that but eventually they did and it wasn't because of the mac computer by the way as you know ravi it was mainly because of the ipod which was a nice closed architecture music player that really turned apple around and then they they moved to the the iphone which was another big success for them but again closed architecture in fact all phones are closed architecture these days um, as well as most products are closed architecture these days Uh, so apple over time did went out but it took them a while before they got there well do you think it's easier for black
3: students to enter the it industry nowadays or or, and what can we do better
4: yeah that is a um that is my charter um for me at this stage in my in my life is to let, let me first say this I think the barriers to African-Americans entering the IT industry are huge. And I think it's twofold. I think it's one because African-Americans don't think they have the ability to learn this technology. It's just a uh, generational thing that has happened to them over time because of some of the uh, injustices that have been put upon them. Uh, So they believe that this is just something that is above them, above their heads. Uh, And then if they even want to take that next step and get access to this knowledge, that access is limited. So you have those two barriers that they have to face. One is overcoming their own misconceptions of what technology is about. And the other is having access to the places or to the people that can help them move into this technology, this technological arena.
3: And do you think the kind of recruitment pools or the areas need to change and and, and, and look wider into the uh, community?
4: Yeah, uh, I have a blog that I wrote on my website. And the blog is called Coding is the New Wrap. And what I mean by that is for the African American community to really become proficient in technology, it should not be an option. They should be learning how to code at the middle school level. It doesn't have to be deep coding, but the concept of coding should be taught at a middle school level. They need to start having the feeling mentally that these are things they can learn. And unless you introduce this to them at an early age, they won't do it. And I say coding is the new rap because if you think about the way African-American children or the youth of, of of these neighborhoods interact, they can learn how to recite a rap song in a heartbeat, right? They can learn the beats to a rap song in a heartbeat. So they have the capability to learn, but they choose what they want to learn. And what we have to do is show them that technology is something that they should also learn. Because technology, coding teaches them structure. It teaches them things that are above what they do in their career after they learn it. It teaches them life's lessons as far as how to do specific things and expect a specific output.
3: I I think definitely in the UK in the 90s, we had a, a, a kind of brain drain at school where Um, They really simplified the subjects and uh, uh, really, you know, changed it. And with stuff like the Raspberry Pi coming out, it seems that, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot more accessible in the future for a a lot more people, hopefully.
4: Yes, yes, yes. And here in the U.S., you know, at least there is now talk about changing the way, uh, first of all, policing is done and then using some of those dollars to better educate uh the youth in these inner cities so i'm hoping to see some changes in that but i'm advocating that every day
3: well you've also wrote a book about your amazing story as well could you tell us more about that and where our listeners can get hold of it
4: yes so the book is called imagine that with an exclamation point at the end and the book really goes through the the journey that I had from the challenges of growing up in Brooklyn. Ravi, I'll be honest with you. There's probably at least two or three times when I probably shouldn't even be on this call. I should have been dead, but I made it through that world. And it's in the book about how I was able to overcome those types of obstacles and then how I got my start in technology and how I was able to work on the design of the MP1000 video game as one of the first African-Americans to design a video game. That was huge. Now, at the time I did it, I really didn't care because I just had a good job. But over time, it turns out that that was a monumental thing to happen. And I talk about how I worked through that design work at APF while still going through the challenges of living in Brownsville, Brooklyn.
3: I, I, was, I was reading some chapters of it and, it and it sounds absolutely fantastic. Like, you know, uh, that that one where you say pretty much everybody that you grew up with is either into into crime or or locked up, and uh, you yeah. seem to have yeah. escaped that. So a fascinating tale. I recommend it to everybody.
4: Great. And I was wondering what you're up to nowadays. So today I am i uh, – I'm retired from full-time work. However, I am doing a lot of consulting work and a lot of mentoring and a lot of speaking to different uh, high schools and universities, telling my story, encouraging African-Americans to get into the field of technology uh, as quickly as possible. There are so many opportunities in this environment and I don't think our folks know that. So they need to be made aware of that. Teachers need to stop telling them the things they cannot do and start promoting the things that they can do and technology is one of those. So that's what I do today is I promote uh, technology awareness in the african-american community
3: well ed it's been fantastic and i need to get my hands on one of those imagination machines and give it a go yeah i still have my own Ah, oh, wonderful great stuff ed thanks for coming on thank you robbie for having me